0: We continue in our verse-by-verse study of Luke, and we now move into Luke 21, verses 5 and onward. Uh, It's the beginning of a long and sweeping section of Scripture. I'm going to read Luke 21, verses 5 to 8, and then a companion verse from Matthew 24, which is a, a, a larger expansion of this same teaching of Jesus. So let us together hear the Word of God. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, stop there. Matthew 24, verse 3. Expands the very question they were asking him. The text says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? This is God's time-spanning word. May we hear it and see it in all of its majesty. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. As I said, we come to a very significant portion of the Gospel of Luke, and it runs from chapter 21, verse 5, all the way to uh, verse 36. It is significant for two reasons. Number one, it is the longest answer to a single question that Jesus ever gave. That means he must have wanted the details to be understood. And when you understand the sweep of what he's going to talk about, the times of the end, you will know why he gave such an extended answer. So it's the longest answer to a single question that Jesus ever gave. But secondly, it's important because it is a detailed description of what are known as the end times. In particular, he describes... The persecution that will come upon the church as the time of the end approaches, the time of the tribulation, and the visible return of Christ to the earth. All of this is covered in this sweep of scripture and amplified in Matthew 24, which we'll also touch on in the weeks ahead. This passage spans history, and our teaching of it will span history. It will run from just a few years after Christ's death and resurrection. As you look at Luke 21, that is verses 5 to 6. Then it will continue through through the entire age known as the church age, covering the rising persecution of the believers and the arrival of the tribulation period, followed by the triumphal return of Jesus. That's chapter 21, verses 7 through verse 28. And then it will, include, will conclude with some teaching about how all believers over all the ages need to prepare their hearts for the coming of Christ. That's verses 29 through 36. Now unlike some believers who say that there's really not much we can know or need to know about the end times, Jesus here goes into detail. He tells us there is much we can know, and he tells us there is much he wanted for us to know. So we're going to go over this over the the coming weeks. Today, I'm going to pause before we get into the details beginning in verse 5, and I'm going to give you a frame, as I often do, into which you'll be able to fit all of the teaching that's going to follow over the next few weeks. It's a frame to fit around what Jesus will now teach us about the times of the end. You could call this message the big picture of the last days. Now, I've covered this with you before in a single message some years ago when I did a series on the return of Jesus. I'm going to be giving you that content and some more today. Now, uh, a lot of times people tell me I preach so fast and give so much detail, they, they get behind in their note-taking. It's sort of like kind of a fire hose. Um, I apologize. Um, I, I preach as though I've never preached before and as if I'll never preach again. So that's the way that works. Today, no fire hose. You're going, ah. Oh. Today, fire hydrant. <laughs> it's coming at you. Also... Forget about uh, me ending on time. I'm going to apologize in advance. I've already told our staff. Wow, okay, right on, good. They're saying, don't encourage him. Well, hey, today there's a lot to cover. And I'm going to go through a span of study over the end times. To do that, I've given you a, uh, a handout that's in your, in your worship folder. We always debate, what do we call it here? Bulletin, worship folder, the thing you get when you come in. That's it. And we're going to refer to that throughout this message. I've included a lot of my message in that. So have that at hand, but don't read it yet. Focus on me for a moment as I give you some introductory comments. Let's see how well that works. (laughs) It's true that there are differing views among godly Christians about what I'm going to be talking about, about the times of the end. And we fellowship together in the gospel, although believers may hold differing views. I'm going to teach you, however, what I have come to understand the Bible teaches as I have followed what's known as the grammatical historical method of interpreting the scriptures. It's taking the literal sense of scripture, unless uh, God tells us otherwise. It's taking the scripture at its plain and literal sense, interpreting it according to its grammar and its historical place. And when I have read the scriptures that way all of my Christian life, this is the doctrine that I've come to. I have preached this view of of the times of the end, all my christian life and all my preaching life decades we're going to be talking about what's known as the premillennial and pre-tribulational view of the times of the end this by the way has been the teaching position of valley fourth church for 50 years and it will continue from this pulpit as i preach it so uh you may have a differing position or point of view. We fellowship in, in the gospel and in the great essence of what Christ has done. But I invite you to listen with an open ear to what I'm teaching. For some of you, this may confirm what you believe. For others, it may cause you to ponder and consider what you believe. Now, there are lots of different views, as I said, premillennial, postmillennial. And millennial and a lot of other ones, those are terms that are thrown around and pre-trib and post-trib and all of that. But there's one view that I I, I would be critical of. I understand different views of thinking about the end times. But there's a lot of folks uh, that have been taught or have just come to believe, you know what, there, there, there's not much we can know for sure about the times of the end. And you know what, it doesn't really matter much anyway. It really doesn't matter much. Let's focus on the gospel and on helping people. And, and, uh, that's where they land. So you, you, you know, there's, there's premillennial, there's amillennial. I call those people the non-millennials. <laughs> they go, nah, I'm not interested. You know, I mean, that's, that's their viewpoint. I would challenge you if you've never studied this or you've let somebody talk you into believing that we can't know in, in detail and it doesn't really matter much about the times of the end. I beg to biblically differ. We're going to go through what what the Bible talks about in a sweeping study. Why would Jesus go through such clarity and give such descriptions if he didn't believe that everything he told those disciples they could understand and they could hope for? It makes no sense. Why would the Bible start with a very detailed description of creation in Genesis, the first early chapters, and give us great historical detail and and, and specifics that match the entire March of God's plan all the way through the ages. Only when we get to the times of the end to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you about all of that. That's not the God I know. That's not the scripture I read. He would not give us a clear creation and then keep us in the dark about the conclusion of all things. His great plan to bring glory to his name. Why would he not give us great detail? Why would he not give us things to hope for and to pray for? Why would he not give us an understanding of where, what will happen to the nations, what will happen to the peoples, what will be the experience of believers and all that's coming? He would not leave us hopeless. He would not do that. If the times of the end can't be clearly understood, why would 30% of your entire Bible have been prophetic at some time in which it was written? Why would hundreds of prophecies about the first coming of Christ for his life, death, and crucifixion and resurrection be fulfilled specifically to the letter and the other hundreds, several hundred prophecies about his final coming only be conceptual or symbolic or impossible to understand? Those two things don't match the God of Revelation. And I mean, by that, the God who reveals truth. Why would would 10 Old Testament books clearly and solidly talk about the second coming of Christ in detail, in prophecy, in hope? Why would 23 of the 27 New Testament books you have before you in your Bible talk deeply and specifically about the second coming of Christ, even as was read in our hearing this morning by Elder Elder David? Why would these things be there if we were not supposed to know them? Numerically, did you know that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ? This is not something God wants you to be unclear about. So we're going to talk about this, and I hope that you see that there is much more to learn than you might have thought and that it really matters. Now, why does this matter to the believer? Because we were built with a longing and a sense to know what is coming. We have been built, the Bible says, with eternity in our hearts. Therefore, we have a sense of God's greater doings, and we want to know about them. And we're frail people on a failing planet. Therefore, we have a fearful desire to know what might be ahead. Don't you? I know that I'm troubled by all the things that I'm experiencing and seeing. I want to know what God has ahead for me. Dr. John Walverd from Dallas Theological Seminary, who formed so much great thinking about the end times, put it this way. Have you ever driven down a strange dark road in a blinding rainstorm? Or here in the Northwest in the winter, a blinding snowstorm? Every minute, you wish you could see beyond the edge of the headlights, right? To see what's ahead. If only you could know what was coming next. If only you could intuitively know what's out there or predict what you'll find at the next bend in the road. We long to see ahead, to know, perhaps to avert disaster. Now, can someone see what's ahead by intuition or a special gift? Can a prophet know the future because the path of our lives is part of a larger drama scripted ahead of time? His answer is yes. The biblical prophets did. This is what the prophets of the Bible claim. They did know the future revealed by God, and they've laid out something that's beyond the headlights. We can know where we are in that pattern of events foretold by the prophets. We can know what is written in Scripture. We can know what they saw in their apocalyptic visions of the future. In the uncertain storm of the days in which we live, all of us yearn to see beyond the headlights, he writes. But can we? And the answer is a resounding yes. Not everything, but all that God wants us to see. So, We're going to talk about this. I'm going to give you the times of the end, the big picture as I understand them and as we teach them. Now you can grab that piece of paper. You've been so good, class. Take a look at it. I'm going to be preaching out of this. On the one side, you'll see a pictorial representation. This is a kind of a visible span of where we'll be heading and it talks about the future as, as it unfolds. Now, just a brief description of this. You see the cross very clearly here. That was the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago now. That began what is known as the church age. That is where we are dwelling and living right now. That's where God is working right now. Christ rose from the dead. The the Holy Spirit came upon Peter and the people there at Pentecost, and the church was born. And now God is building His church, filled with Gentile and Jew, people from all walks of life, all the nations and languages of the world. He's drawing them to His Son, and He's placing them into the body of Christ, the church. That's the age in which we're living right now. Now, we don't know when that's going to come to an an end, because as I'm going to teach you, the next great event in biblical history, and this is kind of biblical history here, is you see something called the rapture. That is the invisible return, invisible to the world, but very visible to believers of Christ for his church. That event will signal the end of the church age and the beginning of what are known as the end of days. There you see many events coming after that, a tribulation of seven years, the second visible coming of Christ. He came invisibly for his church to end the church age. That's just ahead. We know that it's coming. We don't know when it could be today. Seven years of tribulation, which I'll talk about, and judgment, but also of God doing a mighty work in the world. The second visible coming of Christ at a time of the Father's choosing to mark the end of the tribulation. It's just preceded by something called the Battle of Armageddon when Antichrist leads the armies of the world against Jerusalem and against the God of the Scriptures. Christ comes and in victory defeats all those forces. He comes and judges. He begins something known as the millennium. That's a thousand years of time in which he partially renews the heaven and the earth and he rules from Jerusalem and we shall rule with him. And Israel, having returned to him, will inherit all of her promises and be the focus of so much going on in that thousand years. After that, There will be the great white throne of judgment when all the dead from all time are raised and will face God Almighty at the great white throne. You see, two arrows there. Those whose names are in the book of life, who've come to believe in the saving work of God through Christ, will be ushered into heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. That's the upward arrow. The downward arrow is the ultimate destination of all those that reject the love of God in Christ, eternal hell. That is the span of what we're going to talk about over the next moments. And it's a visual kind of description. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Not inspired, trust me. But the best representation I could put together for you of where the times of the end will go. Now, what I want to do is is talk with you about Uh, these dimensions. Here we are in the church age, began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It'll end dramatically at a time we do not know. Could be today, could be years from now. The the rapture events occurs, and God takes the church out of the, the realm of the earth, and he takes the church to be with him in heaven, while all the other events you see after the rapture take place on the earth. During this age, people are coming to Christ And God is building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to draw in all uh, those who are going to come. Now it sets the stage for the end times. End times begin the moment the rapture happens and then the world rolls through them. So what I've done, now you can turn to the back, is I've, I've I've broken down the the times of the end into 10 stages. This is not original to me. Scholars and thinkers out there use the same language and, and break it into the same dimensions. I thought this was the easiest rendering that I found to give to you. Many sincere biblical Christians you can see at the top have varying views about the times of the end, I take a pre tribulational and I would add pre millennial approach to eschatology, 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 last study, logos study, the study of last things. From that perspective, here is the order of end times events that the Bible reveals. So now it's okay for you to have this open before you, and I'm going to go through this at fire hydrant level and uh, walk you through what, what you may need to know. This is also that when I this is all done, so that when I begin the verse by verse teaching in Luke 21 next week, you will have a frame to fit what Jesus taught. So let's move forward. Take that, hold it in front of you, put it on your lap, whatever, and uh, let's move through it. There are ten stages to the end of the ages, if you will. Stage one: the invisible return of Christ for His church. This is a return of rescue, taking the church out of the wrath that is to come. This is known as the rapture of the church coming from the Latin word uh, rapare, which meant to snatch away. That was a rendering of the Greek word in, in the New Testament, which also meant for, to snatch away in an instant. Christ will come in the clouds to snatch away all those who trust in him. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. At the same time, the dead in Christ will be resurrected and taken to heaven too. Where are the dead in Christ right now? In spirit, they're in heaven with the Lord. Their bodies are still here on earth. At the moment of the rapture, not only if you or I and I are alive, we will be changed in a moment into resurrection bodies, and we will be in the presence of the Lord in the sky and then back into, into, into heaven to the Father's house. But if you've lost a loved one in Christ, their body will be taken out from the earth wherever it is and it will be made new in an instant. Their spirit will be joined with their body. And the Bible says, thus together we shall ever be with the Lord. I'm going to say amen, even if you don't. Thank you very much. Some of you are reading. This is good. From our perspective today, this is the next event in the eschatological timeline. In other words, it's the next great biblical event in God's plan. The rapture is imminent, according to Bible teachers. That means that no other biblical prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture happens. It could happen at any time. It could happen in this moment. It could happen years and years from now. The believers who wrote the New Testament believed it could have happened in their time, and they lived with that hope. But it's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. When it happens, We're going to have two things happen to us. We're going to suddenly get new bodies and we're going to suddenly find ourselves in a new place in his perfect presence. It's going to happen in three ways. Suddenly, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, it'll be in the twinkling of an eye so fast. That nobody will even understand what's happened on Earth, but we will suddenly be in one place on a broken earth with a broken body and a sinful soul, and in the next Foom will be perfected, and we 'll see him as he is in our resurrection bodies like that. Second, it'll be silent. The world will not see it or see it or know what's happened, except that suddenly it'll be the third thing shocking. The entire globe will have to come to terms with the fact that hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who've trusted in Jesus Christ will disappear before them with no earthly explanation. The Bible talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I read, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. By the way, there's too many scriptures, so they're not going to be on the screen. It would slow me down. Just, I've given you all the references. This is for you to take with you. Look it up. Study it on your own. But First Thess 4 says this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, Paul writes, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we will always be with the lord therefore encourage one another with these words i'm going to say it again even if you won't amen why would that be encouraging to the believers in Thessalonica well they had been taught that the tribulation had already come they'd been taught that they were in the middle of it they needed comfort to correct that false teaching And Paul promised him here, hey, listen, the tribulation hasn't happened, but one day soon he could be coming for you and he'll take you out of that. It can be encouraging to any believer at any time. Listen, it can be encouraging to any believer at any time today for two reasons. Number one, it tells us that he's coming at any time. The Bible says so many times the believers in the New Testament wrote, even so come lord jesus they would greet one another with an aramaic saying maranatha which means oh lord come they knew that he could come at any time and they knew hey he's coming it's getting worse but he's coming it's tough now but he's coming i was talking to a brother the other day about physical suffering and a dear family member and he said oh i tell you my great hope is that the lord could end this today we could be in heaven together because I know he's coming. I said, amen, brother. But not only is it comforting because we know he's coming, it's comforting, secondly, because we know we're going. (laughs) We're going ahead of that terrible time of trouble. Revelation 3.10 says God will keep the believers from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth. Many times in the Scriptures, it says that the believers are not destined for wrath. So we are not going to head through that long line of tribulation you see in your chart he'll be taking us out because he's committed to do that for his church so the next great biblical event in history is going to be the rapture there've been many great events in the past creation the fall the flood the 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 appearing of israel as god's uh, people to to, to, to proclaim his truth, then the appearing of the Messiah, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the death on the cross, and the wonder of the resurrection. But the next great event in history biblically will be a disappearing. Not an appearing, but a disappearing. And then he's going to follow that by another appearing. You see, I've put a line under that, the invisible return of Christ for his church. Go down to number four. One day at the end of the tribulation, he's going to return visibly, the visible return of Christ with his church. I've taught you many times that there will be one return, but it'll be in two phases. He's coming back. He's coming back in two ways, invisibly for his church in the clouds, and then visibly where the whole world will see him to final, bring a final end to the tribulation and the history of man. So that's what's ahead. The great disappearing, a mercy of God. Now some believers, and I've talked with many even over the past week, it's interesting the conversations I have, maybe you're here, maybe you're one of these, believe that it just doesn't make moral sense to them that the church shouldn't go through the tribulation. They tell me that the church should suffer to prove her love for Christ. The church shouldn't be any different. Oh, but the church is different. The church is not destined for wrath. That wrath was taken by the Lord Jesus. When I speak with these dear dear folks, I I mention three things. Number one... Uh, don't worry, you're probably going to get all the suffering you want (laughs) before he comes in the rapture. It's not certain, he could come now, but part of what we're going to study in Luke 21 is Jesus says, as we approach the times of the end, persecution will escalate. It is one of the signs that it's coming to an end. And so I tell them, oh, don't, don't worry, you'll probably get all the suffering you're interested in before he comes in the rapture. Number two, I wonder if you're undervaluing what Christ did when he took the wrath for us and he paid for his bride. Is there more wrath to be taken by us? No, he took that wrath completely. I think you have a weak view of the great atonement and what he went through. Is there something missing in how Jesus died for the church? And why would he take his precious bride, for whom he paid the price of his own blood, and then... Put her through the tribulation as though to afflict her in the same way he would afflict those that hate him. Try and put those together in the moral circle of God. I have a problem with that. And thirdly, I say, you seem to be out of step with the New Testament Christians like the Apostle John and others who believed he could come at any time and they wanted him to come and take them from the wrath that was coming. Maranatha, dear brother. Well, stage one. Now you can tell we're going to have to escalate. Now we come from the blessed hope of the rapture to the dark scenes in the middle of this that's followed by the blessed hope of heaven. But now the images get darker and the next stage is are filled with woe. What's the second? Immediately after or maybe some years after the rapture. We don't know. It could be years between the rapture and the rise of the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist. The second stage comes. People say, I think the tribulation comes right after the rapture. No, it could be years of time and things may need to develop in the nations for the person that starts the tribulation. You see, the tribulation doesn't start until a certain person rises into the fore in world affairs. That's why stage two in the end of the ages is the rise of the Antichrist. After the church is taken out of the way in the rapture, a satanically empowered man will gain worldwide control with promises of peace. You can see all the biblical references there. He will be aided by another man called the false prophet who heads up a religious system that requires worship of the Antichrist. They are, they are a, a tag team from hell, and they are filled with demonic power. Some believe that the Antichrist is even indwelt by Satan himself. They will rise to the fore. You see, the rapture of the church is going to shock the world and it will inaugurate the end times, according to how as I understand it. The world's going to struggle to make sense of what has happened and to recover from the vanishing of millions of people. The, the, their absence will have ripple effects through every dimension and sector of society. The world will be grappling and probably move itself into a, a one-world formation of government to deal with the confusion of the nations. Out of this consortium of a one-world government Dominated by a group of ten leaders, one will rise to the fore. He will be a striking individual. He'll appear from the shadows. He'll rise out of insignificance and obscurity. He'll seem to come out of nowhere, but he's going to quickly ascend to prominence over all the rulers of the world. And he will be known as, well, he's best known biblically by his title, the Antichrist. Anti means not only against, but in the place of. Study him, and you will find he is a satanic counterfeit to mock and take the place of everything Jesus Christ really is. Now, this individual will rise into world prominence. We don't know how soon after the rapture his rise will occur. Months or years, but he will rise. Daniel 9, 27, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate... His whole career is described in the book of Daniel and the the chapters of Revelation. What's his career going to be like? It'll originally rise as a man of peace, and through satanic power, he'll unite the world and temporarily bring a unity and an end to the world's fears and woes. One of the things he'll do is he'll strike a peace with Israel, which will still at that time be a source of contention, even as it is today, even the headlines this morning with Iran now proclaiming they have the capability to be nuclear tomorrow. And Israel responding under threat, a trip to the Middle East that was essentially a failure by our current president. It will remain contentious all the way through the end of days. The world will be so troubled By Israel and angry, but this Antichrist will rise and create a false peace in which he brings the world to be at peace with Israel for the first time. But in the middle of the tribulation time, he will break that peace and he will then bring fierce persecution upon the nation of Israel and all Jews around the world, and he will turn on every person that has turned to Christ during the tribulation. You say, I thought all the Christians were gone from the rapture. They are, but the gospel will still be here. The Bible will still be here. Christian teaching will still be here. People's memories of Christians sharing the gospel with them will still be here. And people will come to Christ during the tribulation period. And they will become the perfect target of the Antichrist who will persecute believers during the tribulation. As they come to Christ, they will quickly die for Christ and suffer greatly along with Jews and the nation of Israel itself. He will have an otherworldly hatred for Israel and for believers in Christ. Tribulation will begin to fall on the earth at that time, Revelation 6 through 16. God's judgment will begin to fall, but even that will not stop the Antichrist in his rebellion and his schemes. Toward the end of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, he will appear in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and he will sweep away the worship of the God of the scriptures, and he will put himself in place as God and demand to be worshiped by all the world as God. You know these these predictions, don't you? He will then begin an unrelenting war against the God of the scriptures represented by Israel and by the believers that still survive on the earth. And he will gather the nations in a final assault against the God of Israel by attacking Jerusalem in what is going to be known as the Battle of Armageddon. So that's what's coming. The tribulation will be inaugurated by the rise of this individual. It's interesting that the greatest threat to the future of mankind is not a sick planet, but a sick person. It should be a reminder to you. This Antichrist will be a man. He will be be the ultimate sinful man, but he arises from sinful men. That's why preaching the gospel, not not bringing renewal to the planet or, or political domination is the greatest need of any hour. Third stage, quickly, stay with me. As the Antichrist rises in influence, the moment he signs the peace treaty with Israel and creates that false peace and begins to deceive the world, that's the moment, I believe, when the tribulation officially starts. People say, are we in the tribulation today? I'm worried about all the things that are going on around us. We must be in it today. That's what the Thessalonians were worried about. No, the Scripture tells us that when you see the Antichrist inaugurate a peace with Israel... Well, then the tribulation begins to roll. What is the tribulation? Look at your notes. It's a period of seven years in which God's judgment is poured out on sinful humanity. It's described in 10 horror-filled chapters in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist's rise to power is associated with this time period. He inaugurates it with the peace treaty with Israel. During the tribulation on earth, the church will be in... Thank you. Read that again just so I can hear it. In heaven... It is thought that at this time, the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb will occur in heaven. We will be in heaven, we'll be with him, and we'll be rewarded at the great judgment seat of Christ, receiving rewards for all we've suffered and how we've served. It's to be a glorious time while we're there. Now, there are the many key verses for this. I, I told you basically 10 chapters in Revelation. Obviously, we're not going to read all the way through that. But th- that sweep of chapters says the judgment of the tribulation will fall in three phases number one is seven seals will be open in heaven and that'll unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse you've known of them those are they're they are symbolic of literal suffering by the way the symbols in revelation they're symbolic of literal things a lot of people don't understand that many people today were their symbols of other symbols well where does that leave you oh that's why we can't really know anything about the times of the end no 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 they're symbolic of even more, more amazing literal things. You don't have to live with guesswork in your Bible. Anyway, I digress. There are seven seals broken in heaven in the great throne room and great judgments of warfare across the world and disease across the world and death across the world begin to march. In chapter 8, verse 6, now you go to phase 2. The seven trumpets are blown in heaven and more judgment is released. This seems to focus on natural and ecological disasters that God himself causes. The earth will become a wrecking yard. Plus, many mighty diseases will come, so much so that in chapter 8 it tells us that one-third of humanity will die under that judgment. And finally, in chapter 16, the third phase when seven bowls are tipped out upon the earth, symbolic of God's final wrath falling in fullness. This will involve many supernatural and... and, uh, Uh, and astrological events, disasters in the heavens, the sun's heat will be so intense that every person will suffer, and earthquakes in every city will flatten and change the topography of the earth. I could describe it for hours. It is ten chapters of horrible judgment on mankind for sin and rejecting God's love in Christ. There will be two human reactions during the seven years of the tribulation. One will be rebellion. Go through the book of Revelation, you'll see more than once that as these judgments fall, and you would think for sure sinful people would know this is from God. I mean, it's coming down from the skies themselves. But what do they do? They hide in the rocks and curl the fist in their hearts and say, the wrath of the Lamb has come. But one thing they don't do is repent. Do they? The rebellion hardens the fallen heart of all the people in the future that won't turn to Jesus. But there's a second response, and that is response. Part of it will be rebellion, but there will be some on the earth in that time of the tribulation suffering who will not rebel. They will respond to the gospel. They will respond to the love of God that is being preached. God will have gospel messengers throughout the earth during those days. 144,000 Jewish people will come to Christ. They'll be covered by the Spirit of God. They'll be distributed throughout the earth during all those times. They'll be supernatural. 144,000 apostle Pauls is what I call them. Except the Bible says they can't be killed. So they'll be alive throughout that portion, The particularly the last three and a half years. Many Jewish people will come to Christ, and they will preach around the world. There's so many other ways in which the gospel we heard will be heard worldwide, so you'll, t- you'll see two things happen. There will be a return of Israel to the Messiah. Zechariah talks about it. Daniel talks about it. The, the many portions of the Old Testament prophets from Isaiah through, through Hosea and others, and Joel talk about it. And a revelation describes it. The Jewish nation under all that suffering will have a mighty return to Messiah and they will turn to him and begin to be saved. But also millions more who are not Jewish are going to respond to the preaching of the gospel. I actually believe more people will be saved during the seven years of the tribulation than in any other gathered set of time in the earth's history. It's going to be awesome. You see, God's totally in control. That's why Christians don't have to fear the future. Now we're going to miss the worst of it because of the blessed hope. I meet more Christians today because of the COVID experience and, and the rising uh, authoritarianism and statism, not just in our country, but all over the world, the plummeting moral moral life of the world and everything else, they're fearful that we're in it, that we're in the tribulation time, and they're wondering and they're fearing and they're reacting out of fear. Beloved, uh, no. We'll be taken out. The tribulation doesn't come until the Antichrist rises first and you see the events in Israel begin to take place. Maybe, though, we're tasting the first tremors. Maybe, though, we're testing, tasting what Jesus is going to talk about later in this chapter, the beginning of the darkening of days. I wouldn't debate that. But he's with me all the way. Isn't he with you all the way? He's planned all of this, and I believe as I read my Bible, he'll deliver me, and, and he'll finish his work. Stage four, the seven years roll. Remember I told you it's one return but two phases? Here's the second phase. He returned invisibly for his church, for his church. Fourth, he's going he's to return visibly with his church. Notice the difference in the wording. The first was a, was a return of invisible rescue. This is a return of visible retribution. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns with the armies of heaven. By the way, who's going to be part of the army of heaven? You and me. The angelic army with him and all the believers from all time. The church age will be there. It's going to be awesome. He saves Jerusalem from annihilation against the Battle of Armageddon and defeats the armies of the nations fighting under the banner of the Antichrist. This event is known as the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist and the false prophet are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire. To put it simply, he judges the nations, and he will begin the millennium after that. Now, there's many places you can go. Revelation 19 is the most from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords it will be a frightening time for those left on the earth in rebellion now I want you to notice the distinctions between these two phases in case this idea of the rapture is new to you. The, the invisible return of the rapture is different than the visible return of retribution. Why? The first coming for Christ for his church is invisible. The world will not even understand what's gone on, although we will in a sudden, blessed moment of time. The rapture will happen in the air, in the clouds, will go to him. The second visible coming will return with him to the earth. It all happens on the earth. The first coming was he came for his church. The second visible return, it's different. He's going to be coming with his church. How could they be the same event? They can't. The first, he's coming to rescue his beloved bride. The second time, he's coming with retribution to a rebellious world. They're different, you see. The first coming of Christ at the rapture is before the full wrath of God falls on the planet. The second Return of Christ, the visible one, is he's bringing the last uh, dose of wrath, if you will, and final judgment on the planet. They're different events. The first happens before the tribulation. The second happens to end the tribulation. The first is called in the Bible a blessed hope, but the second return is called a day of mourning for the whole world. You see, there are distinctions. Let's go quickly to stage five. What happens after Christ visibly returns to the earth? Well, he will judge the nations. That's number five in your description. Christ will judge the survivors of the tribulation, separating the righteous from the wicked as sheep and goats. It's thought at this time that also the Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead. The righteous will enter the millennial kingdom. The wicked will be cast into hell. You've heard often about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Jesus describes this in a companion passage in Matthew 25. It says before him will be gathered all the nations after he returns and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep on the right hand from the goats on the left. Then he will say to the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What's going to happen at the end of the tribulation? A lot of people will still be alive. They will have rebelled against God. But then there will be some who have come to Christ during the tribulation. So there will be sheep that have come to Christ. There will be goats who have rebelled all the way through the judgments until the end. And Christ will separate those people and judge them. It's going to happen on earth in real time. Right after that event, six will happen the binding of Satan. You may never have heard about this. Satan is going to be bound and held in a bottomless pit for the next 1,000 years to the great rejoicing of God's people. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of this in verse 2, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a 1,000 years. Now, there's more to that story. It's further on in your outline, but stick with me. What happens after he judges all the unbelievers on earth at that time? He judges the world, and then he uh, casts Satan into an abyss. What happens? He begins something called the millennial kingdom. You've heard terms premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We are premillennial. We believe that Christ will return, and then he will set up a literal thousand-year kingdom, a millennial kingdom. Remember, I said to you, my understanding of the Scripture comes when I read it naturally and literally, and I take it for what it says. So this millennial kingdom, number seven, is one where Jesus himself will rule the world. He's going to partially renew the heaven and the earth at that time. It will not be completely renewed, but he's going to, as some people say, reverse the curse. The earth will be as we could never imagine it, essentially where it was in the Garden of Eden. It's going to be awesome. And on that partially renewed heavens and earth, he will rule that world, the earth, and Jerusalem will be the capital of his rule. This will be a 1,000-year period of peace and prosperity on earth. Read about it in Revelation 20, Isaiah 60-62, to and by the way, many other Old Testament descriptions. God's many promises through the prophets to Israel will be fully fulfilled in that age, and they will receive all the promises God ever made to them. You say, I thought Israel is not in God's plan anymore because they crucified the Savior, and God has rejected them. Oh, no. The book of Romans tells us they're in a a time of partial hardening. They're under temporal judgment for that unbelief. But one day he's going to come upon them in mercy because God's promises he keeps. Doesn't keep the promise based on our performance. He kept the promise because he said, I've chosen you, Israel. You are a people for whom I have a special plan. And in the millennium, those promises will be fulfilled. They'll have all their land. The, the, the throne of David, Christ will sit on as the, as the ultimate king of, the, king, da, king of David's line and all of that. That may confuse you. Just remember this. God keeps his promises to his people. I tell you what, if God did not keep his wonderful covenant promise to redeem me and take, take me to heaven based on my life, I'm hopeless. Why would he use a totally different standard for Israel? We are saved by grace through faith. I could go on and on. This kingdom is going to be amazing. It's going to us are in what's called the messianic age on the earth. Now, you know, there's times in the Bible where it says we will rule with him. How many of you have heard of or read or those things? This is probably the time when that'll happen. We'll rule a wonderfully renewed heaven and earth with him. Will lead people to Christ because there will be people who who were who were living who were believers that came into that millennial kingdom after Christ's return. They're going to have children. They're going to have families. It'll be such a marvelous environment that a baby, a person who's a hundred years old, will still be regarded as a baby. It's just we'll have a marvelous length of life. But some will need to come to Christ. We'll we'll spread the gospel around the world. It's all a marvelous story, all happening from Jerusalem and Israel will be a big part of it having turned back to Yeshua, their Messiah. Revelation chapter 20 talks about this thousand-year plan of time, and God's going to partially renew the earth to do it. Here we go quickly, 8, 9, and 10. There's going to be one last battle, though. Remember I told you Satan bound for a thousand years? You might ask yourself, why wouldn't Satan be bound forever? That's the right solution, isn't it, God? Look at all he's done. Look at all that he is. Well, God in his own sovereign wisdom, is going to allow Satan to be unbound at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years. Satan's going to be released from his prison for a short time. He's going to deceive the nations once again. There will be people born in the millennium who may not turn to Christ, who will not turn to Christ. He'll find room in their hearts to create a brand new rebellion, a brand new movement against Christ. There will be a rebellion against the Lord that he'll quickly defeat. You can read about it in Revelation 20. And Satan will finally then be cast into the lake of fire, never to reappear. I don't know why the Lord's going to allow that. One of my guesses is, is he's going to show you that man's wickedness is so deep, man is so depraved, that even in an almost perfect new, new heavens and earth, even with Christ himself on the throne visibly there where you can see him and hear him, even with believers in resurrected bodies walking the planet, even with all the wonders of who God is and what he offers through Christ, there will be people who will still not want him. And when Satan rises out of that pit, he'll have some people to deceive. It's as if God is showing, listen, the greatest problem in the, in the universal history is not Satan. It's man's depravity. And that's why I have to judge people forever. Just to my guess. Since you, sinful people are not going to get better and better. We're not going to find a way to Christianize the whole planet. No, darkening will come. Stage nine, hold on. What will happen after that rebellion? Well, God will finally gather all people who have lived throughout all of time, and he'll judge them eternally. That's called the great white throne judgment. It's described in Revelation 20 in very deep and chilling language. Revelation 20 says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence earth and sky fled away. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. People say, what, a literal lake of fire? Possibly not. But remember I said symbols talk about even more deep, literal things. A lake of fire will be bad enough, but if it symbolizes something that's literally even worse, I can't imagine. That's where you're headed if you've rejected Jesus Christ. The verdicts will be read. Read. People say, I'll I'll just take my chances when I appear before God and I'll argue for myself, I'll explain that my life was on a curve better than a lot of people's. My good outweighs my bad. You know what? You're going to have that chance. And you won't even have to worry about your faulty memory. Everything you've ever done will be read to you and you will stand speechless before the supreme justice and perfection of God. Because you've not turned to the supreme perfection of Christ and taken his death for you. People say this world is so ugly. That People say I've suffered so much from others. People say there's so much wickedness. It shocks me every day. How more deep can we go? Did you know that one day God will do something about sin? He will do something about evil. He will do something about the wickedness of man. He'll do it. Now, if you're a believer, the Bible tells us actually we'll be in that judgment hall and we'll be watching that judgment take place. If you're a non-believer, you will be the subject of that judgment. I'm telling you right now, today you've heard the gospel. You've heard the God's plan for the end. You've heard his plan for those that reject his son. Now you are accountable for what you know. Turn to Jesus Christ. If you've been playing games with Christ all your life, you may not have much life left, and ultimately it'll all be dealt with. Come to him. I said the middle footsteps in this journey of the end are dark, and they have been, haven't they? It is a terrible thing to think about God bringing tribulation on the earth. People say, Christians, talk about the tribulation. No, I'm not self-righteous about it. I deserve to be there. By His mercy, I won't be. These are dark things armies and rebellions and judgments and hell in the balance. But one day, all the dark things will be settled. Sin will be erased. The devil will be in that lake. And all of those that don't love God and Christ will be an eternal hell. You say, what could be after that? Listen, only glory. Only the goodness and the presence of God. Only what experience can be like without sin. And that's the last. It's called the new creation. We call it also the eternal state. When wickedness is banished and the devil is dealt with and sin is erased, God will then completely remake the heavens and the earth. It's been partially remade. First Peter tells us he's going to just evaporate it in a nanosecond, and he's going to start from scratch, this time with no taint of sin. I can't imagine what this earth and those heavens will be like, and they'll be built for forever. He'll do that in a moment of time, and And then we'll dwell there, and it's at that time that God wipes away all tears because there's finally no more sin, and there'll be no more pain, no more death or sorrow, and a place called the New Jerusalem will descend from God's throne room onto the new earth, and the children of God will enjoy eternity with Him. It's all in Revelation, two wonderful chapters after chapters of horror, chapters of hope, 21 and 22. Bible says in Revelation 21 that I saw a new heaven and a new earth and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The last chapter is the best chapter. And God has shown us that in that last best chapter, there's no last page. Think about it. It'll roll on forever and we'll never stop discovering how great he is and how much blessing he has for us. And it will all be increasingly good. Why? Because he sent his son into everything that was horrifyingly wicked and evil. And his son took the horror and the penalty of that hell you and I deserved and absorbed it all so we can be with him one day. Hmm. What a good ending. Amen? Amen? So that's the story of all that's ahead. It's my best estimate of describing what's just beyond the headlights. Why does it matter? One author wrote this, biblical prophecy is important because it tells us the end of the story. It's our guidance system. It tells us where we're going. God was kind enough to give it to us. It reveals that just as our world have a defi- had a definite beginning in Genesis 1, it will also have an ending in Revelation 21, and that ending will ultimately be very good. It reveals to us that there is an end. There is a purpose and a goal for this world, for creation, for humanity, for us as believers. Knowing this can give us meaning and perspective and purpose and hope. This is why I believe Jesus gave this long answer to the simple question, what will be the sign of your coming? We'll begin to explore it next week, but I hope today this frame of understanding will help you fit the teachings of Jesus into place and that over the weeks to come, you will grow in hope.